there's definitely a, a show of humanity in this film that I, I have not seen as much in the other more polished versions of, of Emma. I mean, you, you talk about interpretation and I'm, I'm just wondering if, if the reason why this, this film is coming back uh, in our lives very regularly, does it mean that uh, it brings this escape to a time and place where constraints of modern life were not the same and there's there's no work? Okay, that's very problematic because as you said, like it's it, this polished image of where the money comes from. I mean, colonialism, right? It's never mentioned. Is it safe yeah. to say that slavery is fueling their style of life? And can, can we talk about a superficial society worried about sitting straight and holding their cups of tea with dignity, but, but, and they're consumed with planning the next ball? Can, is it, can we talk about this society in terms of an aspiration for us, or is it more coming as a, a criticism, a harsh criticism of what wealth does and brings is this um new version uh, the the wild film showing another reality and how um how what do we learn from this about us and what's what's the attraction again and again and again well heritage adaptations definitely bring a sense of nostalgia and we do like to see ourselves as if what life would be like i'm thinking austin land you know the t let's pretend that we're back there, a better version of ourselves. Austin does bring up slavery. She alludes to it in Emma, which I didn't really feel was being addressed in this adaptation necessarily. If we're looking for that type of nuance, I think this adaptation didn't follow that one in particularly because there's no conversation of Jane Fairfax relating the sale of intellect to the sale of flesh, which happens in the novel. And it happens in the Kate Beckinsale, the Andrew Davies adaptation of Emma. But mm -hmm. so, so the whole, the whole idea that, Social interaction carries a moral implication, which is evident when you read the novel. I think you really have to look for it mm -hmm. in adaptations because that, that complexity, at least for me, seems to be ironed out in most adaptations. This one, this one strikes me, uh, I, and, Jane, and Jane, you just alluded to this. This one strikes me as, you know, as a coming of age story novel. And, and it's mostly Emma's coming of age mm -hmm. to the in the novel to the extent that uh, I think Austin largely ignores, as you point out, largely ignores Mr. Knightley and, and his development. But but what we get to see Emma making lots of different choices and almost all of them bad and and sort of following <laughs> the result of, of those Uh, are, are tracing out the consequences of those choices. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and one of them for me, and again, it's, you know, it's not, we're, we're not talking about slavery and we're not talking about geopolitics and we're not th this adaptation and the novel to some extent largely ignores that. But, uh, but we are talking about sort of those little uh, sort of micro moments, right? And, and one of my favorite ones in, in all of the adaptations and in the novel is the, is the Box Hill 
uh, scene. Mm-hmm. And and I reread I, I reread it as we were getting ready for this podcast, and and I rewatched it in a couple of the adaptations, and and in every one of them, it's just painful. It's just painful to watch. <laughs> partly at this point for me because I know what's coming. But but I reread the novel and and I was thinking about I was thinking about Frank Churchill and and he flirts pretty shamelessly in the novel and in most of the adaptations. He's flirting pretty shamelessly with with Emma and and sort of diverting attention away from what's really going on. Right. His engagement to to Jane Fairfax. But Emma Emma falls for his flirting. And, mm-hmm. and she's, they're talking, you know, in the novel, they're talking about being governed and she says, oh, be, being governed by you. And he says, well, you know, yeah, I guess, but, but also governing yourself, right? He's talking about that. And so she's flirting and he's flirting. And then he plays this, this silly game uh, of saying, you know, of saying these things. And, mm-hmm. and, and Emma says what she does. I'm not going to spoil that. If you haven't seen it, it's, it's the but most painful. No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. It's just the most painful thing. But, but it's the it's one of the big turning points in the novel. It's one of the big turning points in the film, where, really, for the first time, Emma doesn't just do something dumb. Emma realizes that she's done something really bad and dumb, and she feels bad about it uh, for the first time, and she's made to feel bad about it for the first time. So, so what you were asking, you know, what is this, what is this adaptation focused on? I think it's focused on, it, it's focused on love. That shouldn't surprise us. It's, it's Jane Austen, but it's also focused on the dumb things we do when we're in love or when we think we're in love and the way we allow ourselves to be, to say and do things that we wouldn't have said and done had we been in our right minds. <laughs> What I like about that Box Hill scene with all of its painfulness is that that truly is the moment where Emma kind of comes to herself. She doesn't cry after she's destroyed Harriet's chances of marriage with Mr. uh, Martin Martin. of the the great Mr. Martin. She doesn't cry when she realizes that she's been kind of keeping or not necessarily spreading, but uh, creating this imaginary uh, extramarital relationship in her mind between Mr. Dixon and Jane Fairfax. It is when she is rude to her polar opposite, to Miss Bates, who is popular despite the fact she's not rich, she's not handsome, and she's not clever. And so I love that this moment of realization happens not through not because of Emma's meddling in someone's romantic life but showing that Emma herself was being rude to someone who she should have compassion towards and and that's what you know Knightley brings out but when you read the novel you'll recognize that when Emma thinks about her father and would anyone think that she was not a good daughter to her father because she knew that Miss Bates had is such a devoted daughter to her mother. This is when she is completely beside herself with grief, realizing that she had acted so improperly. 
So that's what I like. So yes, this is her novels are about marriage, but they're also about learning to become empathetic characters. Her protagonists learn empathy. The antagonists never do. <laughs> <laughs> well, and learning, and and you said this right, coming coming to herself, right, learning to be yes. who she is. She's um, been a prodigal. <laughs> yeah, and not, I, and Jane Fairfax is the perfect example, right? She doesn't like Jane in part because Jane shows her up, um, <laughs> and so she has to, uh, you know, sort of slowly come to terms with this is who I am. And, and I don't need to be guided by Mr. Churchill and I don't mm-hmm. need to be guided by my father and I don't need to be guided by even Mr. Knightley. Mr. Knightley maybe. Yeah. She's ignored him throughout the, the novel and in the adaptation. But compassion, what a beautiful uh, message for our students this week to just look at compassion in this film and, and learn from it. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, I think this is a good spot to end our podcast. Um, make sure that um, you feel like this is complete or as complete as we can get it this morning. <laughs> I'm perfectly happy. Okay. <laughs> Jane? Oh, I, I I always have audible regret, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but go forward. It just shows I am truly, truly mortal. I just want to say to Jane, but badly done, Jane. Badly what? done. Badly done. The other thing I liked about this adaptation is keeping the age difference between Emma and Knightley, which is completely erased with the Gwyneth Paltrow one. Yeah, she's too old. And he's too young. Yeah. Whereas this one, there was just so much. And I liked how how having the seasons brought up on the screen Mm -hmm. just kind of added to... And the period, like these are complete scenes and sentences. Like Emma herself is, well, she is the conundrum. There's just so much about this novel that is so intriguing in a half hour. Just we didn't even do it. This was and and we didn't even talk about the music in this adaptation, which is yeah, that was so interesting. Yeah, weird. I mean, it's largely hymns. Yeah, uh, sung in a foxy way. Yeah, these acapella performances, they mm-hmm. were, um, I thought, wow, hymns are strange. Not, they're not all hymns. A couple of them are, no. but, but most of them are hymns. And I thought, what a strange choice for this film. Why would they use hymns? And I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. And I think it adds to that agrarian-based society that Surrey was. It, it was not, it was untouched by the Industrial Revolution. So we've got these very unpolished sounding. I mean, they sound good, but they're not, it's not opera. It's, it's not sweeping Hollywood pseudo Regency music. Mm-hmm. It's very of the time, which again, I think is a crack that they introduced is that this is a country town. This isn't a suave city place. Hey, I'll say though one thing I quite missed uh, in this in this later adaptation is Ewan McGregor's wig, um, <laughs> which just made just made the Gwyneth Paltrow film for me. Oh, I loved it so much. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today on our weekly podcast, From the Booth. To get access to the film streaming at IC this semester, please visit our website at ic.byu.edu. 
follow the link on the splash page to sign up with your current BYUnet ID. Please note that you only need to sign up once. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We're solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here, as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. We thank Johnny Stallings and former IC co-director Greg Stallings for the music. We're grateful for Dewey Walter, producer of the podcast, and for our sound engineer, Marina Ekstrom-Pratt, as well as the staff at the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. Until next week, keep streaming and stay healthy.